everybody. To episode 193, Breaking Kayfabe with a Bojern and Barry. With me, my co-host, Oh, Barry. This episode, lots of dick talk, if you know what I mean. Yeah, where this is going to be a, a dicky episode. 193 episodes, Jeff. 193 episodes. This is going to have to go on my tombstone when I eventually pass away. Okay. So... Among the things uh, Dick-related that we'll be talking about, <laughs> our match of the week, Barry, we are going to January 31st, 1986, Houston, Texas, the Sam Houston Coliseum. We're talking a little Mid-South slash UWF action as the uh, big transition getting ready to happen there within a matter of weeks. Six-man tag, Ted DiBiase, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan taking on... Buzz Sawyer, the mass superstar, and Dick. Dramatic pause. Murdoch himself. So uh, that's going to be lots of fun to talk about. Uh, as we do every week, we're going to be giving this day in CWF history, June 15th. We are going to be answering a question posed in our group. That question, folks, is it's January 1st, 1976. You are given a wrestling territory, unspecified. Who are the six guys you're going to want to build that territory around? And we're going to be putting that out there for uh, your consumption. We're going to be, oh, maybe talking a little Patreon uh, news and subscriber information. And finally, Barry, we are going to be talking about a top 10, top 10 favorite chocolate candy bars. Ooh. What do you think, Barry? I, it's food related. And I know you're always up for a good food conversation. Especially if it's got sugar in it, Jeff. And well, you know. Coco. So yeah, I'm very excited. This sounds like a lot of fun today. That's what we're all about. Lots of fun. So what do you say we give it a start? Let's do it, man. So very right off the beginning of the show, let's talk about our match of the week. Once again, we are going January 31st, 1986, Houston, Texas, Sam Houston Coliseum. We got Peter Burkholtz on the call of this match, Barry. And uh, we are talking Ted DiBiase. Dr. Death Steve Williams and Hacksaw Jim Duggan take on Dick Murdoch, Mass Superstar, and Buzz Sawyer. What'd you think of the match, Spear? It, it, Peter Burkholz, too. Has he ever been has he ever been a guest on anybody's podcast, Jeff? Are we aware? I, I know he did a <laughs> 605 appearance. He did, okay. Yeah, I thought because he is uh he was, you know, you go through the history of Houston wrestling, and there was a gentleman named Morris Siegel who was prior to Paul Bosch. And, uh, and I think Bosch was working with Morris. Morris either passed away or retired. He was an older guy. And then Paul Bosch, obviously, everybody knows. But Burkholz worked alongside Bosch for years. And just, I, I imagine his stories, he would have to be a wealth of knowledge. I think he would be a fantastic guest. I did not hear him on the 605, but I may actually go and search that out now. So this is, when you look at the talent in this match, Jeff, too, you got Dr. Death, and DiBiase, who were really, I think at this stage, they were probably in their, these were, this was the peak. This was the Dr. Death could be no better. DiBiase was just fantastic here. You've got Duggan, and really Duggan in Mid-South was probably the best version of Hacksaw Jim Duggan that we ever saw anywhere. They're going up against Dick Murdoch. Let me quickly say, Dick Murdoch looks fantastic in this match. Working shoes on, just really giving it all. Buzz Sawyer. You know, it's Buzz Sawyer, enough said. Uh, and the Mass Superstar. I don't remember the Mass Superstar spending a lot of time in this area, though, Jeff. I want to say he he was gone by the time that the UWF Tag Team Tournament, which was like, I think, end of March, 
So this might have been towards the, uh, you know, I, I agree. I don't think it's like he was there a year. But if he was there, this was towards the end of his run in uh, Mid-South, right before they became the Universal Wrestling Federation. Yeah, and this was the this was an area that I the time frame that I was watching this product religiously. He was definitely gone by the time the tag tournament because I don't remember that. But I don't remember. Maybe was this looking at that date too? Was this partly during a sabbatical from the WWF? I know that we saw him in Florida, and I I, I want to say we saw him in Florida maybe a couple of months later. He was only in town for in town in the state for maybe two to three weeks. Won the Southern title from Luger. Yeah, so it was it. a very quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah super quick. I, and I think that was partly because he was doing the whole machines gimmick and they he had left and then come back as a machine. I don't remember exactly, but that's interesting. So anyways, getting back to this match as I go off in a completely different direction, this was a good match. I don't think this was a great match. I think maybe there was too much talent. Sometimes when you're overloaded with talent, not everybody gets to shine the way that they should be. I did think the first half of the match was a little slow and a little slow paced. I did like the interaction between DiBiase and Dr. Death and Duggan. Obviously, Duggan, I think it just turned, right? Or it hadn't been a, a long amount of time because there's a couple of references where they go to high five Duggan and Duggan looks around at the crowd. Should I? Well, I, th I, I think not to interrupt you, I think yeah, the yeah. turn was not Duggan. It was DiBiase and Doc that had right, just that's turned. Right, right. And uh, so that's why the, the initial apprehension before they do the high five, or as Peter Burkholz called it, a high 10, because he uh, he high-fived <laughs> both guys. So, yeah. So, anyway, please continue. Yeah, but, I, uh, but it's a good match. And, it, again, the first half's a little bit slow. The second match picks up. I, I'll tell you one thing that I really got a kick out of was the interaction between Murdoch and Sawyer. And Murdoch was one of those guys, we've, we've talked about this previously, he had a lot of fun being a professional wrestler. A lot of guys, especially in the last couple of decades, you know, it, it was more about how much am I going to give? I'm not knocking anybody for that, but how much am I going to get paid? The money's what's really important. But, you know, Murdoch was a guy that loved being a professional wrestler, and you can see it. And he, he always seemed, even during the darkest moments, he always seemed to be having fun. So watching the, the interactions between he and Sawyer, it just looks like Murdoch is just having just a blast with it. And Sawyer, of course, just a complete lunatic on every level. Mass superstar, in my opinion, the guy who's just way out of place in this match as well. But I think overall, if I was going to give this some sort of rating, maybe a Norman Dooley star rating scale, maybe I would go three and a half to four stars, Jeff, out of five. I think that's fair because I, uh, as I watched this match, I thought to myself, this was probably a lot more fun in the arena that night than it is watching it on TV. And I will say that because you got about 19 minutes worth here uh, of this match, okay? And the first, I'm going to be generous, first five minutes, maybe, maybe five minutes plus is a lot of, you know, uh, Duggan and Murdoch doing the, are they going to shake hands? Are they not? The crowd's reacting. He's trying to calm the crowd down. Murdoch is. Does he want to shake hands with Murdoch, uh, Jim Duggan? Or he's looking for advice from his partners. They're like, no, no, no. And quite frankly, it's a little bit of clowning around. And th that's the kind of stuff I think that translates way better when you're sitting there at ringside than when you're watching the match with the benefit of 35 years of hindsight. So uh, I think that the second half of the match, Murdoch was working a lot more 
uh, as far as wrestling and uh, very, very ridiculous sounding, the art of wrestling, because the, the, what he was doing the first five to seven minutes of the match was essentially working the crowd. And not that I'm poo-pooing that, or there's certainly a, an art to doing that also, but there was also some clowning around going. And, and as I started watching it, I was like, oh, shit, this is just going to be like 19 minutes of Dick Murdoch goofing off, you know, because we've said that Dick Murdoch has matches where you sit there and go, holy shit, why did they not make this guy the world champion? And then Dick Murdoch has matches where you sit there and go, okay, is this guy ever, ever going to lock up and, and do something in the ring or is he just going to goof off? And there is an appreciation you can have for that if you're not expecting the the five-star Dick Murdoch, you know? If you sit there and somebody, you know, if I call you and say, oh, Barry, you got to watch Murdoch in this match because he does nothing but goof off. Okay, then you know going in, okay, I'm going to get the goofing off Dick Murdoch. And you sit there and you'll start laughing and you'll enjoy it from that. But if I was to, you know, call you and say, Barry, you got to watch Murdoch in this match because he is working his fucking ass off and he looks like a world champion and you turn the match on, you got the goofing off Dick Murdoch, you're going to be like, what the fuck was he talking about? Man, he's, he's, he's goofing off this whole match. And understanding that there were, in fact, two different Dick Murdochs, the first seven minutes of this match is the goofing off Dick Murdoch. And, and you know, you could appreciate that while hoping that, you know, as you've got a match that you're recommending to people as your match of the week, that you're also going to see some of the five-star Dick Murdoch. Now, that shows up a little bit later. And it turns into a, a good match, like you said. I, I think that three and a half stars, fair, fair rating. But I'll tell you the guy that really, to me, shined in this match. And you, you made a slight reference to him, but Buzz Sawyer is just fucking off the chain in this <laughs> match. He, he is literally the mad dog unchained. There is a sequence he does, I, I want to say it was with DiBiase, where he's doing the drop down, then the leapfrog. Yes. And, you know, he's doing, and, and it's a, a sequence. If, if you ever watch Buzz Sawyer, you're going to recognize the sequence I'm talking about, but he does it. And he's got like springs in his legs and you sit there and you just go, Oh my God, this guy, this is the guy that I remember because you know, that was the boy. I remember burying uh, around, what was it? 81 ish when buzz was in CWF and he had that feud with Coco Samoa and he would wrestle on TV and you would see this stuff on TV. And he would do that power slam where uh, the guy would, kind of jump over him, Buzz would leap up, catch the guy in midair, and then twist his body around in the power slam, and you'd sit there and say, holy shit, how did he fucking do that? That's like the greatest move I've ever seen in my life. And you see some of that Buzz Sawyer in this match. And you have to remember, for context, uh, at the time this match took place, Sawyer and Duggan had, uh, I think they were just kind of finishing up a very long program that they had had over, I don't know if it was the... Uh, the Mid-South TV title, the Mid-South North American title. Excuse me, Barry. Gunny just decided to stop by for a quick hello. Oh, Gunny. He says hi to Uncle Barry. Oh. So, anyway, he's a good boy. But, uh, and then you, you had DiBiase and Doc were the Mid-South uh, tag champs. Well, DiBiase and Murdoch, of course, had just had their program like maybe two months before where they did the infamous angle where Murdoch and Flair and DiBiase do their you know, he's, uh, they're applying a compression bandage to the wound. You parents might not want to keep your uh, little ones away from the TV set, which is just freaking Bill Watts genius, by the way. So you had a lot of stuff interacting. And so the point you make about that mass superstar is kind of the guy that seems like the odd man out. He he really didn't fit into there. You know, I almost as much as I love Bill Eady as the mass superstar. Oh, he's great. Yeah. And, and, and I love him as the mass superstar so much more than I love them as demolition. 
which is, you know, not damning with faint praise because Demolition had their fans and they were a good tag team and I liked them. But I just thought he was completely on a different level as the mass superstar. He was just amazing. But he just kind of seems like he's, I don't know. I mean, this is honestly, this is towards the end of the mass superstar run. But uh, he just doesn't seem like the kind of brawl. I'm trying to think of who they could have gotten. Like if they had put, just as an example, somebody like Terry Gordy and made him the third man on the Murdoch-Sawyer team. Like that's not necessarily Gordy in particular, but that style of wrestler that's just all out brawling and and wild crap and stuff like that. Slater was there at the time. If they put Slater in this match, I think it would have been a, a much more interesting match because of the matchup. I will disagree with you, though, Barry, Uh-oh. Uh, because people Uh-oh. say we don't, we don't do a lot of that. When you said this was the height of Ted DiBiase and uh, Dr. Death. Yes, I definitely, did. Definitely for Ted DiBiase, I won't disagree with that. But if you remember, Steve Williams, he still had those years in all Japan. Yeah, that's where, true. Where he was wrestling with Masawa and Kobashi and Kawada. Right, so this. Let me let me put a caveat in the U.S. I think this was that's fair. That's and, fair. Yeah, because take Steve Williams in Japan was really a different guy than he was even in the U.S. As a lot of the wrestlers are, but in the U.S. I think this was probably you know and, and maybe this into the next year. But yeah, his his Japanese work blows away everything that I would absolutely agree with. So you would say I was what, Jeff? You. Are 100% correct. Check. People love when we do that, Barry. So, Barry, the time this episode comes out on Tuesday will be June 15th. And you know what that means, Barry? That means June 15th is uh, the middle of the month. So I'm very excited about No, more important than that, Barry. And more important than this day in CWF history, June 15th, by God, is my mother's birthday. So, Uh Mom... Happy birthday, Mary Bowdrin, a friend of the show, and may I say, a proud member of our Breaking Campaign with Bowdrin and Barry Facebook group. Eh, she doesn't post a lot, but she's a kind of a lurker. She goes on there. So I'm going to post my mom's birthday on Tuesday. And by God, the people in that group better show up and wish my mom happy birthday. Is she still listening to the podcast, Jeff? Do we know? Uh, you know, I, I can tell you when I tell her that I mentioned her on the show, she'll listen. All right. So I was yeah. going to start reading from the Jody Arias transcripts. Well, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I'll stay away from that. Perhaps we'll uh, do that next week. Uh, you Save know, it so. for Patreon, right? <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> definitely yes. There you we'll go. Let people pay to listen to our Jody Arias. <laughs> exactly. Story. Let's see if we can get her on. Jailhouse interview with <laughs> yeah. Jody Arias. That's uh, ratings, <laughs> ratings. Yes, sir. <laughs> so anyway, so Barry, now that I broached the subject, why don't we talk about this date in CWF history, June 15th? Oh, Barry, what happened on this date in CWF history? Absolutely. So we are going to go back to 1977. This this would be exactly one week after the big heel turn of Ernie Ladd on the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Who was out signing autographs and should have been there working with Ernie? Wasn't paying attention to his partner. Wasn't paying attention. Just terrible to do it. But they had their first was match. Was looking at some curly-haired kid in a <laughs> couple of rows. Looking for autographs. Exactly. <laughs> Will you sign my program, please? I still, I still fucking do it. 57 years old, I still go, Will you sign my program? I need to get a life. But uh, they had their, their first match in Miami took place because the turn had been seven days earlier. And it wound up being Dusty versus Ernie. It was a double disqualification. Uh, the weird thing about this, too, is I, I, I'll go, you know, I'll go to my grave saying this was one of the best turns I ever saw. 
certainly being there live, certainly being a kid is going to amplify all that. But even when you watch this turn on video, it's dramatic. It's compelling. The weird thing is it didn't translate to the box office. And I don't know exactly why I could sit here and tell you a million reasons why it didn't. But at the end of the day, none of that makes really any sense because a heel turn from Ernie Ladd, who was fantastic in any role he does, turning on the most popular wrestler in the state, if not the world, should have sold out every arena. And for whatever reason, they, they really didn't do too well together. Attendance wasn't great. And they actually cut the legs off this program after about three weeks and they moved them on to other people. So very bizarre. But uh, yeah, that was kind of exciting. So, Jeff, we're going to go back way, way back in time. We're going to go to 1945 and Roy Welch. So Ah, you are going back into the archives. There's a reason I'm doing that, too. And, uh, you know, you look at the Fuller family and all these, you know, you hear all the time, who's the greatest family in professional wrestling? And you know, we always get the same names. It's the Von Erich family. It's the Briscoes. It's the Ortons, whatever. And the Fuller's... Oh, I thought you were going to say the McMahon family. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. That was for yeah. you, Tennessee Stud. That was. No, I, absolutely not. But you look at what the Welch family did, and I, I think what really, in my eyes, what's most important... So, you know, look, they weren't selling out Madison Square Garden. Let's Let's put that out there. You know, they weren't in the biggest arena in the world selling it out. What they were doing is having a continual hand and a foot in the world of professional wrestling for 50, 75 years, you know, 80 years, something like that. You know, even to this day, you know, Ron's got a very successful podcast. Robert makes a lot of appearances. I think Robert even pops in the ring occasionally. So, you know, to me, it's incredible. But when you look at a card, taking place in Miami on this date in 19-fucking-45. Roy Welch uh, loses to Tommy O'Toole. And well, how well, did, well, well, uh, this date, in, so it was June 1945, right? Well, it was June 15th, 1945. All right, so, so we, had, we had, Hitler was gone. He had offed himself in the bunker. Uh, the, the European theater of war was over, so people had a chance now to go out to the matches in Miami. And so, uh, anyway. And I think, and I think, putting a little historical context on there. Yeah, but that's good to do that because this was, in a lot of ways, a boom period for wrestling as well. You know, people after the war, you know, obviously a lot of things were changing at the time and people were excited to do things. So putting the context, but this this took place at the old Miami Arena, which is not the, uh, I forget what they called it. Uh, It wasn't called the arena, but it it certainly wasn't the venue that, that, you know, was in operation uh, recently. But, Tommy O'Toole, I don't know a lot about him, but I can tell you he won this match, and this was a two out of three falls match. Tommy already had heard. Have you heard about Tommy's sister? Plenty. Plenty O'Toole? I thought you were going to say Annette O'Toole for a minute. Plenty O'Toole. That's a a James Bond's reference. uh, All right. So anyways, the ropes broke, Jeff, during... uh, during, Yeah, the ropes broke, and uh, the referee declared Tommy O'Toole the winner. I do believe Roy Welch spilled outside the ring and, yeah, was just unable to. So moving on, and we're going to stick with the Fuller family. Let's go up to 1966 in Sarasota where you've got Buddy Fuller and Lester Welch facing the masked medics in Sarasota at the old American Legion Arena. This was the venue that was used in Sarasota prior to Robarts 
So again, you know, you, you can go now, back for the, to the folks, folks out there. I interrupted. I'm sorry. No, no, please. Who were the medics? Who were the medics? There were so many different versions of the medics, and I'm not exactly sure who this version was. We saw a couple of different versions. I, I want to say I think these were actually the original, which I think was Donald Lorty, and I forget who his partner was. Please continue. Uh, yeah, exactly. Going back, and again, we'll, we'll stay back in the, uh, some of the older times. Got a world tag title defense taking place on this date, 1963, in Lakeland at the National Guard Armory. The Torres brothers, Ramon and Alberto, working with another pair of brothers. These brothers are Fay brothers, Kurt and Carl von Brauner. It, Jeff, who was the Torres brother who died, I believe, either in ring or right after a match? Do you remember? Was it, was it Enrique? Was it Enrique? Was it Enrique, Enrique or, or Ramon? Yeah, I don't. And, and I'm thinking it was Enrique or Alberto. That's interesting. Now, here is a mystery on this one, Jeff, and I, we've been trying to figure this out for years, and we got a hint, but I'm not sure it's correct. This date, 1970 in Fort Pierce, Jose Supersock Lothario and Argentina Apollo facing the Outlaws. However, Jeff, this is not the Texas Outlaws. This is the Mast Outlaws. And the only thing that I've ever gotten was before he passed away, Randy Colley, uh, Moondog Rex, I believe, and Detroit Demolition, and probably 50 other uh, aliases. Uh, actually, Randy the Mountaineer in Knoxville. The he, Nightmare in... Uh, the Nightmare in Mid-South. Mid-South yeah. yeah, you're right. He's, this guy was a... Uh, I mean, he had more gimmicks known to man than anybody, but he had admitted, or I don't know, admitted. He had, he admitted. Under, <laughs> under, under All right, admitted. all right, I'll fess up. <laughs> All right, right. The tortures worked. I'll admit it. But he had he had somehow copped to this at some point that he was underneath the hood as one of the outlaws in Florida. You know, I go back the first time I ever saw Randy Colley, I think was 1976. I don't was he working in 1970? I mean, it's possible, but is it logical? I mean, it was Twelve, uh, you know. Right, right. That's it. In the old days, sure, you could have gotten away with that kind of shit too. Gary so, Gordy did. There you go. Yes, he did. So then we've got two matches coming up. We've got this date, 1970 in Orlando, Texas death match, Jack Briscoe defeating Missouri Mahler. What makes that interesting is these two had faced each other a year later in Tampa, Jack Briscoe versus the Missouri Mahler. Same opponent on the same date, just in a different city. 1972 Jacksonville, Florida title versus Southern title. Tim Woods versus Paul Jones, which just had to be a great match. So, Jeff, this is a question that comes up, and we should just uh, take the bull by the horns and address it now. Which title was more important in the state of Florida? Was it the Florida title? Was it the Southern title? Which one was more important, Jeff? Florida. It was. And people will say, well, the Southern title, I mean, Southern title is like nine states, right? No, it was defended only in Florida. And the Florida title was always positioned as the most important title. And, and much like I believe was always said on the St. Louis broadcast, if you were the Florida champion, Gordon Soley would make reference every week to this being the stepping stone to the NWA World's Heavyweight title. Now, there was a reversal of that in the early to mid 80s, 82, 83, when the Florida title 
became much less important and the emphasis was put on the Southern title. And I think that was a booking decision that somebody had made in trying to do it. And all of a sudden you're seeing guys like Kendall Windham and Jack Hart, Hector Guerrero or Florida champion, but they're defending the title in the third match of the night. But the Southern champion, Lex Luger, whoever else, mass superstar, they're working the main event. So there was that kind of switch that occurred. Big card taking place. Love 1976. We talked about it last week. You asked me a question. If you could go to any of these cards, and I said 76 is it. But look at this card. 1976. I'm going to read you off four matches. I believe there were seven that night. But these four, Texas Bull Rope match, Dusty Rhodes versus the original Assassin. King Curtis versus Pac Song. If Curtis wins, he gets five minutes with manager Rock Hunter. And let me tell you, King Curtis did win. Jack Briscoe, Eddie and Mike Graham against Bob Orton Sr. Jr. and Bob Roop. And lastly, Ray Stevens versus Hiro Matsuda. Really interesting. Another thing we talked about last week, Jeff, which I thought was pretty cool, we were talking about double shots. And we were talking about a card in Fort Myers in the day and then a card in Orlando at night. Well, repeat once again, they do the same thing again. Main event, bunkhouse match, Dusty Rhodes and Bugsy McGraw against Don Morocco and Mr. Saito. Cage match, Mr. Florida versus Super Destroyer. That This takes place in Fort Myers. Move to Orlando, Dusty Rhodes and Bugsy McGraw. Facing Don Morocco, but not Mr. Saito, but Nikolai Volkov. However, Super Destroyer against Mr. Florida also takes place. This was a mask versus mask match, and Mr. Florida lost. I believe this was basically his exit out of the state at this point as well. And, and we've, we've talked about this previously. I brought this up. Paul Jones, who was Mr. Florida, was not a huge fan of Dusty Rhodes, and basically said that he was getting over like gangbusters. Dusty had been gone. Dusty comes back. He drops Paul down uh, a couple of notches on the card, puts himself right back in the main events. Paul is phased out. And then Paul continually calls Dusty a motherfucker. So that was... (laughs) That's, that's so surprising. <laughs> that Exactly. That's, and Paul was very, and at some point, I, I've talked about this, you know, with the book. I've got all these chapters that I've completed. I don't know what to do with them. I've got hours and hours of audio tape. And Paul was a, uh, you know, I don't want to profit off of it because Paul is no longer alive. So this would just be something I'll, I'll do for free and put out there at some point. But Paul was really candid and I remember I was a little concerned at one point, Paul, while we were doing this book, and and then I'm going to tell you about the last card, but we were doing the book and Paul had zero filter. It was almost like he was going in the opposite direction. Can I say something to shock you or, or to, you know, to get you to respond? And as we're, we're doing, we would transcribe, literally, I would talk to him four to five days per week for a couple hours per day. And we would transcribe the book afterwards. I would transcribe the book. And during that whole period, Paul went out to uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. And I think he was receiving an award. Yeah, so I get a phone call from Paul. And and Paul says, yeah, I received this award. And I gave this speech. And I think I may have caused a little bit of controversy. And uh, I said to Paul... (laughs) I said, what do you mean? And he goes, and let me 
quickly say too, I, I'm about to utter a word I don't think we've ever said on uh, Breaking K Fabe before. He goes, I called Vince McMahon a cunt. And I think we actually have said that word before. Did but we please say that? continue? Yes. Yeah, so All right. So at some point. I, I, I was like, you did what, Paul? And he said, you heard me. He goes, I called Vince McMahon a cunt in my speech as I was receiving an award. So apparently that, that freaked a few people out at Cauliflower Alley Club. I can't imagine. Yeah. And then I, I tried to have a conversation with Paul after about, you know, controversy can be good. But, you know, there's you got to some. But he didn't give a shit. Paul was who he wanted to be and when he wanted to be. Yeah. And at some point, I, I've got to dig all this information out and put it up here for people to read and maybe even make the audio tapes available to people because they were, you know, <laughs> they're, they're gold. I'll tell you that. They're, they're definitely. But, Jeff, I have one last card, and I, this one has kind of got your name on it. Oh, uh, oh, what? Yeah, well, in a sense, it was uh, 1982. So it's this date, 1982, in the beautiful city of Tampa. Main event is a bunkhouse match. It's Dusty Rhodes versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair. I would imagine Dusty went over on that one. But more importantly, Ric Flair, not a big bunkhouse guy, are you saying? Yeah, apparently, uh, yeah, not a lot of bunkhouses going on in Minneapolis where he's from, I guess. Yeah, but uh, it's the it's the the semi main event that it really caught my eye. It is a newly turned baby face, David Von Erich, working with Dory Funk Jr. And now I, I will just say this and then I'll let you finish up. One of the things I found is after David turned, I don't know about the rest of the state, but when we would go see him, the newly turned uh, David Von Erich, I'm talking about me and my boy, Craig Halleck, which by the way, shout out to Craiger. It's his birthday today, the day we're recording. Every time we went to see David Von Erich after he turned, he no-showed. I don't know if he oh. had headed back to Texas to work for his dad or what. But uh, that's what I that's what I found after the turn had uh, been made official. So uh, perhaps when we get a chance, maybe do some due diligence on that mayor, Mr. CWF, and find out how many cards he no showed. Maybe it was just a Palm Beach thing. Maybe it was like you know he had some warrant out for him just in Palm Beach County. Yeah, which and that's it's funny. I mean, I don't know in his case, but there were certain cities that guys avoided for certain reasons. So. Yeah, absolutely. With that, too. I did see him as a baby face after the turn, but it was very limited. He was only around, I'll say, for three weeks and then he was gone. And I think it was essentially that it was supposed to be the blow off for him. You know, and we saw that in Florida a lot. Pat Patterson, heel, turns baby face, gone to two weeks later. Lars Anderson, hated heel, turns baby face, gone two weeks later. This was a common theme. So I'm sure the plans were already there for David to go. but. Uh, that was a great, I, you know, we've talked about it. I, I think, and certainly you're a gigantic fan, I think David's heel run was the last of the really great, great angles in CWF. You know, there was stuff that happened in 83 that I liked, and certainly 84 and 80, and, and really, I, there was stuff I liked. Oh, like, oh, wait a minute. So you're saying the people online that will post a card from like 1986 or 87 CDBF and go, Oh yeah, it was great. Then uh, they're wrong. Yes. Yes. They were It was horrible. <laughs> what I'm saying, Jeff, and, and I definitely, I definitely want to want to want to quantify this is if you've only watched CWF from say 85, 86 and 87, then yes, it was probably the greatest thing you ever saw. And I get that if you had been around, you know, for 15, 20 years earlier, 
it was not quite at the same kind of level. So again, you and I both started in the early 70s and it just, you know, you're right. As much as I, I might have liked uh, Barry Horowitz or Jack's Jack the Stretcher Heart and, you know, it just it, that whole Kendall Wyndham stuff, none of that stuff added up to what we were seeing. You're saying that David Von Erich heel run that was more effectively done than, say, when Ron Bast messed with Kendall's saddle and he fell off the horse? Yes, that's exactly okay. what. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, better than uh, Blackjack Mulligan's punches. Yes, uh, which are also the, the, the hangman's noose matches where the, the object was to yeah. hang your opponent until dead. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. And, and here's another thing, and this will be controversial as well. And it, it, we're always good for one or two controversy. Controversy things. creates cash, Barry. Well, let's hope so. Speaking of cash, by the way, Jeff, anything new going on in our world? How is the Patreon doing? I'm going to get to that. Finish up your last card. We'll All get right. to that. All right. Notice I was starting to milk the cow before <laughs> she was ready. She said, please, leave my teeth alone. (laughs) Great minds think alike. We both went for the teeth comment. (laughs) Look at that. Yeah, I don't know what else I have to say at that point. But uh, (laughs) yeah, you were right. This is what I was going to say. So Adrian Street came in in 1983. And he came in as a main event heel. And in my opinion, it didn't work. And I'm going to tell you why. So Adrian Street, first off, was the right guy to bring in as a heel because all Adrian had to do was walk out of the dressing room and the, the ringside faithful would immediately lose their shit. And I remember hearing every slur known to man hurled at Adrian. I'm sure, you know, just like the fans of today, the comments were kept to a respectful level nothing of a derogatory nature, uh, <laughs> potentially about his sexuality. Oh, no. Hurled at him. No, not at all. Yeah, no, and that and that's exactly what, and it was, I got to admit, it was weird because, you know, it, we've been around people, and we everybody's been around people that will use derogatory slurs towards uh, the homosexual community, LGBT. But, you know, back in those days, it's like people had like no fucking shame. They would just screaming at the top of their lungs. And, you know, it was like, oh, my God. And I remember sitting there like I'm, I'm with my dad and I'm like, I'm like, like embarrassed. Like, geez, this is really bad. But Adrian didn't work. And I'll tell you why, because Adrian was not the right opponent for Dusty Rhodes. He couldn't have been. Uh, Adrian was a wrestler, first off. And Dusty, when it came to guys who were wrestlers, he didn't have his best matches. Dusty, But was Adrian a- was never presented by the promotion. I mean, really, if you think about it, how many promotions that Adrian worked for did he was he really presented as, quote, a wrestler? And yes, was he a friggin' shooter? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, like, even when he went to the Carolinas, who they book him with? Jimmy Valiant. Right. It's not right. like Jimmy was going to go, you know, collar and elbow with him and let's let's uh, see who can uh, do the Shiazoot. You know, I mean, he was stigmatized for the character. Now, what would I think would have been interesting is to have him present himself as that character and then go in and take the guy down and tie him up into knots and have the people go, holy crap, this guy's a wrestler. He's like Tony Charles, you know? He's like uh, um, Scott McGee, somebody like that. I think if you put him with somebody like that to show that this guy is not just this, you know, this, this character, this outrageous character, but he's actually a wrestler, I think maybe he would have gotten over it in a different way. This is why they call you the booker. Truly, truly. This is it. But you're 
that uh, for the second time this episode, Jeff. Say it. Say it. Jeff, you are a hundred percent correct. I'll just bask in the afterglow. <laughs> there you go. Do all your basking, my friend. Bask <laughs> all day long at this point. But yes, had they, and that would have been, how great would that have been if you brought in this guy that, I mean, on television, they called him a sissy, which I think we could probably say that was, you know, you know, Dusty Rhodes would say, oh, he's a sissy and all this other stuff. But then have a guy who comes out and prances and on his tiptoes in the ring, but then gets down and could wrestle and shoot, you know, with the Briscoe brothers or something like that. That would have been compelling television. Instead, Adrian, I'm going to say he's 5'6 or 5'7. He was very small in stature. They put him in with Dusty, and Dusty was used to working with Ernie Ladd, Dusty King Curtis, these kind of monster heels. And all of a sudden, you're putting him in with this guy who's 5'6 or 5'7, who's not really a brawler, and he's doing a quote-unquote sissy gimmick. It just didn't work, and there's... There was a match, and I saw them a couple of times. I saw them at least once in Miami, but there's some photos that are out there where they're working with each other, and Dusty's essentially laughing through the match, which, you know, that, that's just that's bad to begin with. But Adrian wasn't given a chance. He just wasn't booked correctly. Didn't work, and he wasn't a guy that people saw as any sort of threat to Dusty in any form, and that's a shame because what you just said, you know, fucking wasn't Les Thornton was the world junior heavyweight champion. Imagine putting Les Thornton and Adrian Street in a match for the World Junior title. I mean, would have been incredible. So I don't know. But again, they were looking at drawing money. New opponent for Dusty. It just didn't work. So, Barry, since you brought it up, I think it is time once again. Not all. We're going to give a few more shout outs to our Patreon subscribers. If you have not subscribed yet, why haven't you? It's five freaking dollars. We're not asking. You know, here's the thing, Barry. I'm just going to put this out there. I actually had someone reach out to me and ask, why don't you guys do a year-long subscription? And I got to be honest, I hadn't even considered that. I was like, well, I didn't know people would go for that. So here's somebody that's willing to give us one year's worth of Patreon money. He wants to give us one year's worth. And we got people bitching about $5, Barry. I mean, come on. Yeah, so it, I posted that question in the group yesterday, and it was met with the usual, you know, jokes and sarcasm. But in reality, the the two biggest reasons one appears to be finances, and look, we get it. We know that when it comes to money, you know, people have been out of work. The pandemic it fucked a lot of things up. People lost their houses. But uh, we're only looking at five dollars a month for content. So five dollars a month, give or take a dollar twenty five per week. I could break that down by the day, you know, but it's not a lot of money. But the overriding factor, Jeff, is general apathy and laziness. I'm just I haven't gotten off my ass to do it yet. And that's always like, really? That's that's the, you know. Yeah. Picking up your phone and typing in Patreon slash Baldrin and A&D Barry. Oh, whoa. Hold on. Wait a minute. Before I hit the send button, I got to sit back and rest. Oh, oh, it's five fucking dollars for there's not one reason to do this. There's not two reasons to do this. There are three reasons why you need to do this. You know what those three reasons are, Barry? It's the three best friends that they never need. Yeah, damn had. right. It's me. It's always me first. <clears throat> anyway, me, Lord Barron's. 
and Sweet Lou. Lou lives in San Francisco, for God's sake. Do you know what the cost of living is in oh, San Francisco, folks? Yeah. He has got bills to pay. He's got a wife that's probably sitting in the living room going, Lou, Lou, are you producing more content for the Arcadian Network? He's probably getting that question. He probably is. I bet he is getting that question. Yes. And yeah. meanwhile, meanwhile, you are out there sitting on your couch and you're pausing before you hit the send button because you've strained yourself typing in Patreon slash Baldrin and Barry. Oh, oh. This, so here's what I'm going to do, Barry. I'm going to mention people that have subscribed. All right. So you people out there that are used to getting your name mentioned, see if you can figure out who I'm talking about. No, no. Not until we see your name on this list. So I will not mention those names. People I will mention, Sam Nord. Thank you, Sam. Mark Beaudry. Ryan Damon. I like this one, Barry. It just says Sebastian. I don't know who that is. I do. I know who it is. Okay. So thank <laughs> you, Sebastian. Okay. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I just saw his email address. Now I do know who it is. Yeah, Never yep. You got to kayfabe uh, that. I don't know if he wants that yeah, public. on Sebastian. Yep. Uh, Matt Mann. Chris Lyle. Chris Lyle bought me dinner when I was in Nashville. Actually, it was lunch, but I'm not going to, you know, quibble. Ariel Agbalog, whose name I probably always mispronounce. Good guy invested his solid $5. And I'm going to close with Jesus Salas Rodriguez, who we did a tribute to with the Latina episode of F. Mary or, or Kick to the Curb, Barry. So I'm glad that Jesus, after that mention, came through with the $5. Now, next episode, I will continue mentioning these people. But let's give Barry, join me, a round of applause. Thank you. Uh, Barry is more of a smattering of applause. but uh, a I smattering. I, I'm known for smattering. So uh, we know, Jesus, is, uh, he lives in Puerto Rico. Has anybody outside of the U.S. or U.S. territories subscribed to Patreon? Anybody in Germany or Canada? What about Wales, Jeff? Anybody over in Wales? Our favorite Welshman. He has subscribed. We mentioned right. him last episode. And I will mention a friend of the show because he reached out and, and said that he has subscribed. Uh, uh, Robert Goodian is now a subscriber. That's right, Australia. Australia. So some guy in Australia, guy in Puerto Rico, guy from Wales, maybe. And, you know, these people are throwing their money into the Patreon. Meanwhile, you, you're there uh, in the middle of the United States, and you're going, oh, $5. I'm sorry. And it's just going to strain my budget. All right, enough about that, Barry. So, all right. But uh, we want to we give our appreciation to those that have subscribed and, uh, and will continue to support this show. And we appreciate it. Now, next, Barry. Well, Barry, let's go back, do a little more wrestling talk. And it's funny you mentioned uh, 1976 and how much you enjoyed yes. uh, that particular card from 1976. I believe you said there were four out of the seven matches that you thought were very strong. So once again, two weeks in a row, very solid uh, from Ian Totten, a friend of the show. And he came up with another, another solid question that he posted. And I said, eh, that's a pretty good uh, question. So I'm going to throw this at Lord Barron's unannounced. Uh-oh. Barry. Yes. January 1st, 1976. Okay. You are named the head of a territory. You're given a, you know, they give you the territory and they say, you need to pick six guys Ooh. that you are going to build this territory around. Six I guys. I like it. I like it. That was a good question. Ian, two weeks in a row coming up with good questions. Although, by the way, I will mention, uh, I did finally get a response from uh, Missy Hyatt about Eddie Gilbert's uh, our question last week. And Missy said in her estimation, Eddie, positively underrated. Anyway, I just want to mention that. So 
Let's get on to Ian's question. Six guys you're going to start a territory with. You can pick and choose whoever you want. Barry, who are you going with? So we're looking at 1976. So I actually got to put on my thinking cap. So I hate uh, to make you. Yeah, which is always it's always painful. So I'm much more intrigued by the heel side. But of course, in 76, you really got to have equal parts, baby face and heel. You know, having an all heel uh, lineup isn't going to really draw you a lot. So I'm going to look at my heel side and I'm going to bring in a tag team and I'm going to do six guys. So I'm going to do three and three and I'll do my heels first because they're so much more fun. I am going to bring in a great tag team of Dick Slater and Bob Orton Jr. And I am going to not only give them the tag titles, I'm also going to give them single titles. I'm going to make Slater the champion of the territory and maybe Orton Jr. will be like the Southern champion, something like that. But I would bring these guys in and I would have them be dominant because they were that good. My third heel, I'm going to look at a monster. So I'm not where I've got two guys that are essentially almost wrestling heels in Slater and Norton Jr. I'm going to look at a monster and I'm going to go with King Curtis and King Curtis really impressive at this stage by 79. He was done. It was over. But up until 76, and this was really like his last big run in the U.S., 76, uh, this guy was a monster with that long, flowing gray hair, massive scar tissue on the forehead, one of the best interviewers ever. And it's great because my heel side is comprised now of wrestlers and a monster, which I like. The baby faces really, in my opinion, are going to be much more tricky. This is a lot trickier trying to figure this one out because your biggest baby faces at this time, let's look at 76, Dusty Rhodes, obviously, Bruno Sammartino, Andre the Giant, guys like that. Bruno, I think, off the table, because if I'm building a territory, you know, Bruno's not, if my territory's like, you know, Pensacola in, or North Florida, Bruno's not going to draw there. Dusty would draw everywhere, but I, I, I'm not going to bring Dusty in just because I want to have, you know, I don't know. We have are, something in common. Yeah, but you already know why I'm not bringing Dusty in. So no, 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 but I'm, I'm saying I, I have my list in front of me and Dusty is not on it. And, you know, again, you're, you're correct. I'm interrupting. I apologize. But no, no, uh, Bruno would be uh, very easy. We have not purposely specified which territory we're talking about. So this isn't CWF. This isn't, you know, Mid-South. This isn't the Carolinas right. or New York or AWA or whatever. This is just a particular territory. So that's why... You know, Barry's absolutely right. You know, if you decide your territory is mm, Amarillo, well, is Bruno San Martino really going to be a big deal in Amarillo in 1976? No. Is he going to be a huge deal if you're talking New York or Philadelphia or something? Absolutely. He's going to be a monster. But so we're not specifying which particular territory. It's just very generic in the sense of the territory. Yeah, it has to be. But again, if you had said to me, okay, you're going to, your territory, I'm going to give you a Boston or something like that. Then, of course, I'm, if it's the Northeast, I'm going to bring Bruno in, but otherwise I'm not going to. So finding good baby faces, because the heels, in my opinion, keep the territories running, but the baby faces are the guys that are actually drawing, and they're the ones that are bringing people in. I think if I'm looking at great baby faces in 1976, Jack Briscoe would be a guy that I'm bringing in. So Jack Briscoe's already dropped the world heavyweight title. He can come into the territory. Again, he's a great, great wrestler, a guy that I think would actually draw money as well. 
I'm going to bring in another guy, Jeff, that we're familiar with, and we talked about him earlier, Ron Fuller. So Ron had a I, Ron is a wrestler, and I was fortunate because I saw. I think Ron's heyday was probably in Florida. I mean, he was you know young and he was tough, but Ron was an exceptional worker. But one of Ron's strengths, or Ron's greatest strength at that time, was believability. When Ron threw a punch, you swore he was connecting. Like this was just a guy that he looked stiff in the ring, but he wasn't. But he really looked like he was stiff in the ring. So I like that. Third guy is going to be a little bit of a change, but it's a guy that really can connect with a crowd and an audience. I'm going to bring in Ray Stevens as a baby face. So I'm going to go Jack Briscoe, Ray Stevens, and Ron Fuller as my baby faces. You know, before I tell you who my six choices are, it's funny you mentioned Ray Stevens and I have been going down a little rabbit hole. Haven't used that term in a while on YouTube with Mid-Atlantic. Uh, and I started September of 81, and I'm currently in like the very beginning, like of February of 82, okay? And I know that uh, our friends, uh, John Hitchcock and Oban Johnson and Bruce Mitchell will always sit there and pound the table that Mid-Atlantic was the greatest territory of all time. And, you know, if you're talking about a, you know, a 15-year run, yeah, you can make an argument that they were a great territory. I don't know if it's the greatest territory, but, you know, they, they had very strong years. And then they had years that weren't as strong. Obviously, uh, 83, with all the stuff that led up to Starcade was a great year for them. But, oh, Barry, late 81 and into early 82, I was like, wow, this is not as good as, and I actually reached out to one of the guys and I said, who the hell was the booker when all this was going on here? They said it was Ole Anderson. And I don't know if this was like, you know, I remember they did a 1984, a year in transition. I don't know if this is like a, a, a transitional period for Mid-Atlantic, but, you know, they had guys like Jay Youngblood, they had Jake Roberts. And that, now when I'm saying they had Jake Roberts and Jay Youngblood, this was not the Jay Youngblood from 1983 that was lighting it up versus Slaughter and Kernodal. Uh, Jake Roberts, this is not the Jake Roberts that that came into his own in Mid-South and uh, then went to the WWF and became like, you know, this big household name. These were guys who were still trying to find their footing. And, you know, so the baby, they Ricky Steamboat, but let's be honest, Ricky Steamboat was never a guy that was going to get in front of a microphone and was going to, you know, light light up a storm and get people to, to go into the arenas. You know, he was a great baby face, but he was a great baby face in the ring, not necessarily uh, with a compelling interview, which is, as we've said before, completely weird that he was so compelling at the CWF Fan Fest uh, telling stories because he's not that guy standing there. And then the other thing that is really amazing to me is, you know, Bob Cottle. I love Bob Cottle in Smoky Mountain as the kind of folksy announcer. He was not great in 1981. He had this deal where he would hold the microphone out extended and he just looked so uncomfortable holding the microphone out in front of him. And don't even get me started about David Crockett. Every show would start off with Bob Cottle and David Crockett talking about what's on the show that day, right? And Bob Cottle would go, David, we got we got a big show for the folks today. Uh, why don't you tell them about it? And David would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We got Jake Roberts. Yeah, Jake Roberts. And we got uh, Jay Youngblood. And, uh, 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 who else we got, Bob? Like, really? You're the brother of the promoter and you fucking forgot? And to say nothing <laughs> about the fact that I just watched a show where they had uh, NWA Commissioner Jim Crockett giving a, pro a proclamation about something. 
Have we ever seen an authority? Good Lord. He makes Bob Geigel look like fucking Jake Roberts on the stick, you know, like in the mid 80s. Jim Crockett looks so uncomfortable on, on camera. He just like, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we got a special announcement for a tag team tournament that's coming up, and we're going to be inviting all the stars, uh, uh, Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura, Greg Gagne, and Jim Brunzel. Well, let me tell you something. That little promo that I just did right there was 10 times better than what Jim fucking Crockett did. He was awful. He was awful. Okay, I got off on a diatribe there. That was yeah, good. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, I, I kept watching this, like, I'm going... Now, I don't know, maybe it kicks in. And, you know, part of it is, you know, they built their territory around Flair. And Flair had just, uh, you know, at the time I started watching this, they had mentioned that he had just won the world championship from Dusty. So he was their lead star, and the lead star is in there. Now, I will say, Piper was fucking great. The heel side, I didn't have a problem with. Slaughter was fucking awesome from the yeah. get-go. But, you know, uh, there was other stuff that was just, ah, uh, yeah, Johnny Weaver, Johnny Weaver in 1981 is not getting me to jump out of my fucking uh, chair and go buy a ticket, you know? Uh, so anyway, that, that's another storm. Let me like, get back to my six guys in uh, 1976. It's January. So here were the guys that I thought of. And now I can have anyone to build my territory around. And, you know, you, Barry, I will give you props for coming up with the concept of three baby faces and three heels. Uh, I did not necessarily do that as I started off. But uh, I wanted one of the things I wanted was I wanted veteran guys. I wanted guys that had good wrestling minds. That if I'm running the promotion, I want these guys to be able to help me to uh, book my cards and to uh, give me ideas. Because let's be honest, I'm on the territory. I'm gonna be the booker too, Barry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. So uh, anyway, so here's the names I came up with. Before I start, I know you'll know the answer to this. January 1976, Terry Funk was still the world champion. Yes, sir. Okay, that's the first question I had. So I'm gonna go. I'm going to start off with Bill Watts because I think Bill was still a, a really big deal. He's the guy that you could have as your uh, God bless the USA ass kicking baby face, or he could be down and dirty, miserable son of a bitch heel. So you can go either way with him. Okay. Don Morocco just really starting to come into his own. Another guy that you could make a baby face who that you could switch. And we saw, uh, I don't know if he had, uh, he hadn't done any heel uh, stuff. Prior to 76, had he? Was he still the kind of good-looking surfer babyface? Yeah, so I, I, his first heel run came out in, uh, I think we're in Lou's territory, out in the San Francisco territory, and this is when we used to joke, but we would get the after magazines, and there were photos of Don Morocco in this, this handsome... Late 75 is what Lou says in San Fran. Thank you, Lou. Was so it late 75? So yeah, wow. so January, he would have been a heel. But anyway, you can bring him in, and then uh, you can switch him. Uh, there's that. So the other guys I thought of, uh, since Terry's the world champion, and I don't want to just uh, build a champ, uh, you know, territory around a champion, of course, because he's traveling. So I'm thinking Harley Race. Uh, you know, I really, when you post some of your CWF cards, and uh, it's times when I know that Harley Race was the booker, there's a lot of talent that the guy brought in and utilized very effectively, I thought. I thought he did a really good job. So uh, then another guy that I thought of was Nick Bockwinkle. And I think if you have Nick Bockwinkle come in, I, I'm not going to say that I'm going to have this as part of the six-man rotation, but you bring in Heenan and you have Bockwinkle and Heenan, there, there's your lead heels right there, Barry. You well, know, quick, I mean, quick question. Was Nick Bockwinkle AWA champion in January of 76 or not? I am thinking he was not quite yet the world champion, but I'm sure Sweet Lou will tell us. Uh, another guy, so while we're waiting for Lou to tell me that, uh, Dick Murdoch. 
who we mentioned on the show earlier. I think he would be a guy that would be uh, really great. Again, a guy that could fluctuate between the heel and, uh, you know, a uh, babyface role, depending on, you know, what you needed him for. Uh, and then, you know, I had a name that I, I was thinking about, uh, but then you mentioned, uh, oh, shit, he was the world champion in 75, so uh, I'm wrong. So, okay, so maybe Nick's out. So the two guys that I thought of, you mentioned Jack Briscoe. Jack Briscoe, a credit to any territory he ever worked in, uh, a super babyface, and uh, would have would have been your lead babyface, been great. And then the other guy was Wahoo McDaniel, I think, would have yep. been a, a great guy to have in your territory at that I point. Agree. So anyway, so we had a difference of opinion there, and I think both uh, both sides of the equation uh, would do well, and uh, you could run a hell of a territory with any of uh, the combination of those six guys. Yeah, I like your I like well. And w- the funny thing about Wahoo, I thought about Wahoo after I had already given my choices, but I like your Morocco selection a lot because you know Morocco, especially at that stage, was just really a kick-ass wrestler. He was just a I, I, I can never describe how great Don Morocco in the 1970s was. And even look, in the 80s, everybody loved him in the 80s. If you could have seen him in the 70s, this guy was just unbelievable. That is a really good selection there. Yeah, and when he was still, uh, what, like before, it was before 75, I think, he was the young, good-looking surfer guy yep. who was the first guy to reverse the figure four. At least that's what they uh, said on the CWF. You know, and he was uh, he was the guy that would do the... Uh, what was that? Oh, what do they call that hold where he would uh, grab the guy's foot and then put his uh, his other foot on the guy's thigh and then, and yeah. then jump at the surfboard? What they call it? It was like I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know if there was even a name, but he but was, it was like, always like you were setting up the like guy's that. leg, you know? Yeah, and, uh, that's right. That was always really good stuff. So Barry, I know more than anything, you like a good food related topic. Am I correct? Oh, you, Jeff, you would be a hundred percent correct. So Barry, let me ask you, what is wait, your? Wait a minute, you didn't do it, Jeff. What? I said 100%. You're 100% correct. Check. Okay. I feel good now. Thank you. Yes. So, Barry, let me ask you. Today, we're going to look at our top 10 chocolate candy bars. So, Barry, what would be your favorite? Before we go into the list, what is your favorite chocolate candy bar? Oh, man. Jeff, you have stepped into a world. I I stepped into something. What the You did. A world that I I uh, that I spend a lot of time in. So my favorite candy bar is the Whatchamacallit, which came out with a sister bar this year, and I forget what that was like. Who's a Whatchamacall uh, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. And the truth was, they're almost identical. Like there, there's not a big difference. Last night, Jeff, I actually had a, the Reese's Take Five with the pretzel inside. And uh, that was really good as well. Yes, I, I've, I've tried that before. I do actually like that a lot. Yeah, it was. it's really tasty. But the Whatchamacallit, I think, is always going to be my favorite. So I think the results of this list, bit controversial. So they actually show twenty uh, a top 25. Not going to go through the whole list. But, uh, for example, uh, number 24, Barry, do you enjoy a good Heath bar? Yeah, you know, Heath is it's a bitch on the teeth. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. If if it wasn't quite, if it wasn't ripping out every filling I've got and causing massive root canals and was a little bit easier to eat, I would probably eat the heat Heath more frequently. Yes. Yeah. And then 23, uh, famously at the bottom of the pool in Caddyshack, it's the Baby Ruth bar. I thought this would be higher. That's Baby Ruth is probably my second favorite candy bar. So yeah. I'm a little disappointed, especially considering the Caddyshack and even the Goldbergs on TV, they did it. 
But yeah, that that's disappointing. How, how could there conceive a, a fucking list, right? I always say it too. Exactly. How conceivably could there be 23 candy bars better than a baby? Chocolate candy bars. Chocolate. Exactly. Chocolate. That's going to even narrow the window. Wow. So now here at 15, another controversial. This seems to be a people like it or people hate it. I like it. Barry Butterfinger. I like it. Again, another one that'll fuck your teeth sideways. Yes. Yeah. You're going to be picking that shit out of your teeth. <laughs> you will. And you feel it. It, it, when it. When it hits a cavity or something, you, you can feel this in your brain. Like it's got this like direct route to your pain sensors, much like the Heath bar. And Butterfingers, what do you say, 22, 23? 15. I, I jumped ahead. Oh, uh, it, okay. 15. Even that, Butterfinger is an extremely popular bar, though. I'm and shocked. Right, right ahead. Of the uh, the Butterfinger at number 14, one of Mrs. Bowdrin's favorites, Barry, oh, it's the 100 Grand Bar. Are you a fan? I like the 100 Grand Bar. It's a little, oh, maybe a little tame for me. There there may not be enough going on. That's what I like about the whatchamacallit. It's like a party going on. Now, uh, see, here, here next, Barry, number 12, Three Musketeers Bar. I think yeah. that should be a little lower. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan. Eh, you know what that it, to me is? It's like the most... Uh, the boring vanilla ice cream I've ever had. It, it's a nice candy bar, sure, but I mean, it's so I the know. nougat, the nougat bearing. Uh, maybe but that's not a, it. Man, that's know, it, man. right? It's only nougat and chocolate, right? Yeah. So yeah. number ten. Let's get to number ten now, Barry. Barry, have you ever? I've never had this. It's the I'm going to mispronounce it. Toblerone or Tobloni? Tobloni. <laughs> <laughs> Get what? that brony. No, it's a Toblerone. That's the right. one. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, obviously it's an Italian bar. <laughs> <laughs> Only the finest. It's an exactly. Italian bar. I've never tried this before, which is why I butchered the fucking name. Have <laughs> you ever tried this? I have tried Toblerone. And, it, and Tobler, I think, is the, uh, the company that makes it. I think it's Swiss, actually. But, of course, Switzerland is, uh, you know, a little German, a little Italian. Uh, they got a lot going on over there. I've had Tobler. It's a, I think it's a higher quality of chocolate. Well, but I, well right. yeah, but I think Tobler makes many different types of candy bars, though, right? Okay. Uh, number nine, the Hershey's Cookies and Cream. Now I'll tell you, a big fan of the Cookies and Cream ice cream. Uh, what about the chocolate bar, though, Bear? No, not a fan. So I don't like. Uh, I mean, I'll eat white chocolate, which is not even chocolate essentially, but I'll eat white chocolate but cookies and cream now zoe that's all she gets if it's ice cream if it's candy whatever it is it's cookies and cream for me i have no desire for cookies and cream whatsoever number eight barry the nestle's crunch bar now not a huge fan but if presented to me i'm certainly fine with it i don't have any problems with it just not like in my upper echelon i guess you could say I think you just, you summarize, I mean, when it comes to chocolate candy bars, there are a few that I'm ever going to push away from me, but at the same time, I, I don't recall the last time that I actually went into a convenience store and plopped down my cold, hard cash to get a Nestle crunch bar with that, the hundred thousand dollar bar is to me is a really good version of a Nestle crunch bar. Cause you do get the crunchies in there, but you're getting a lot more. I just always found the Nestle Crunch Bar. I found a lot of Nestle chocolate in general is not great. I do prefer Hershey, but the Nestle Crunch Bar, you know, again, it's it's boring. Now, see, Barry, as we are going through the list here at number seven, I find this to be an absolute abomination that at number seven, there are not six chocolate candy bars better 
Raspberry than a good old Reese's cup. Oh, there's, there's well, like, like what the F I mean, come there's on. Absolutely, people. Exactly. You got yeah. your chocolate, you got your peanut butter. There's the combo of them. And it's, it's just, you know, goodness. It's goodness so, bear. Is this, is this list compiled off of somebody's preferences or is it based off of, I guess, what sells the most? What's the, uh, What's the qualification? Don't ask me for specifics. Right. This is just a list I found on the because Reese's. I mean, is there? Yes. I two candy bars that are, and I'm not going to mention the other one because I know that's got to be coming up. But Reese's to me is probably one of the two most popular candy bars out there. That would be my assumption. So yeah, yeah it's got to be higher. They've gone into all kind of different directions. They they've got uh, been the, successful uh, with that. Yes, for the most uh, the, the nutrageous bar. I like that. Now I will say the the marshmallow one that I tried I like uh, not too long ago was not not great, but uh, they've got uh, they've got some other the Reese's Pieces beloved uh, ET's favorite he chocolate candy absolutely yeah, so, yeah yeah so okay number six Barry Milky Way see I don't have Milky Way in front of certainly in front of the Reese's cup I'm going to say that no it, Milky Way so Milky Way there's not a lot going on either but there's a great flavor to Milky Way I will tell you this Jeff. There is in Disney World at the Yacht and Beach Club, there is an ice cream outlet, and I think it's called Beaches and Cream. Little, you know, play on the words right there. But they do a Milky Way Sunday, which is fucking phenomenal. Like that's like their specialty. And it used to be like 10 bucks, and that was fuck 20 years ago. So it's probably like 50 bucks now, but big Milky Way Sunday with ice cream they have a milky way ice cream they put fudge they put caramel really just amazing on this sunday now again here at number five very controversial selection i'm gonna say that i've had this candy bar before there's nothing wrong with it again it's not in my personal like top three but i don't see how a mars bar is at number five no and i i like the mars bar i yeah. like I, yeah i I'm not a big almond guy, but you put almonds in candy and chocolate, and I eat the fuck out of it. But I love it. Mars Bar is a good bar, but you know, it's uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't see where it's like number three. That doesn't make any uh, sense. Five, but uh, it's five, still, uh, three, it's still con whatever, controversial. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Barry, I know you were not good at math. We're, so uh, we're, we're back to the early days of the show, Jeff, when we couldn't even do a top five. Remember exactly, that four years exactly. ago? Now, Barry, right. you mentioned here we go to number four. You right. said, "What was your favorite brand of chocolate?" It's Hershey. Yeah. Yes. And at number four, it's the plain old Hershey's milk chocolate bar, uh, a staple, if you will, Barry. And that's what it is. It's a staple. It's I've always preferred the flavor of Hershey chocolate to Nestle chocolate. I'm a big fan of, uh, and I don't think this will make the list, but Cadbury. I uh, I eat some of the, which a little little price. That was uh, number twenty ish. Uh, I'll say on the list. They do. It, a, was, it was on the list, but it, but it was like lower. It was low. They do a fruit, and I think Cadbury comes from England, or at least it used to, but. They uh, or whales actually, you know, maybe whales. whales. Yeah, it could come whales. from whales, but they 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 do this fruit and nut bar, and that there's a question there for you, Jeff. Do you enjoy? Because for me, you could put like raisins or dried cranberries. I like fruits and I like nuts in my chocolate. I'm a big fan of that. I am not a big uh, uh, fruit uh, guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, they used to get the uh, the raisinets at the movie yes. theater. No, 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 no. I get the goobers, you know, oh. strictly with the chocolate uh, and the nut mixture, much like the chocolate and the peanut butter. Sure. I, I'm more a fan of that. Uh, by the way, goobers not on the list, just for the record. Uh, 
So, but uh, Hershey's, uh, you know, you like a good Hershey, uh, Hershey's uh, with almonds, uh, something like that. Uh, that that's always a uh, popular with me. So uh, yeah, I got no problem with the placement here at number four with Hershey's. Number three, oh Barry, now see this this one. <laughs> this one is in my top three. All Barry, right. how can you not love a good Snickers bar? Yeah, I I I would have had Snickers at number one because. You know, and I, you know, I, I'm not really sure what the most popular candy bar is. I can tell you, I think as far as advertising, Snickers probably does the most. Snickers adver- satisfies Barry. That's like, what I hear. Don't be a diva. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, they do a great job. I, I think sometimes when we're recording the show, Barry, I need to give you a Snickers bar. <clears throat> so I, you know, do right before we go on, and I have one of my meltdowns. Yes, you do. <laughs> Uh, but I enjoy the Snickers. It's uh, I, the Snickers to me is a uh, it's like an American original. It's like the it's like the flag. It's like an American bald eagle. It's hot dogs and watermelon on a summer Apple day. Pie. Apple pie, exactly. It's no, no, Snickers. Barry, let, let me go on a little side tangent here with the chocolate. <laughs> sure. uh, something Mrs. Bowdrin uh, likes doing. I'm gonna ask you. Never broach this subject with you before, so it may or may not be controversial, Barry. Do you like your chocolate, uh, whether it be a Snickers bar or a Hershey bar, whatever? Do you like them like right out of the package or like Mrs. Bowdrin, do you like to put them in the refrigerator to chill a bit? I like them right out of the package. I'm not again. I'm not going to push away a frozen candy bar and say I'm not going to eat it. Not necessarily frozen, merely chilled. Have a little. You know, you, you get a little little coolness to them. That's the way Mrs. Bowdrin favors uh, her chocolate. Gotcha. So she, it, it goes in the refrigerator. She she times how long it's in the fridge. It's in for thirty minutes. Yeah, she's going. She's taking a a road trip. Like you know, uh, recently she was on a road trip to Savannah, right, and right. Uh, you know, before we went, uh, you know, she was packing up the car. Uh, maybe half an hour. She sticks a. Uh, uh, a chocolate bar in the refrigerator. Uh, so when it comes out, eh, it's nice and cool. Got a little bit of, uh, you know, chill to it. And, uh, you know, so, that, you know, I know different people like things different. I just was curious. That's how you fit. So now we get to the controversial portion of our, Uh-oh. our, because I have to be honest with you, the number one and two selections, not in my own personal top three, Barry, but I'm curious as to how, uh, to tell you what, what would be your number one? You mean what I'm going to, well, I would have said Snickers or Reese's when I was okay. clearly wrong on that. I don't know because I, it, I, okay. in my head, I, I'm thinking that we've covered a lot of the really popular name brand candy bars. Well, I will say the number one and two are popular names, but at least for my liking, I would not say uh, they belong this high in the list. Okay. Number two, very Twix. Are yeah. you a fan? Not a, I, you know, if I never ate another Twix, I'll be fine. I, the cookie crunch, go fuck yourself. I don't care. <laughs> I don't literally. I don't well, get I want it. you to be able to give your fine opinion here, Barry. <laughs> the cookie crunch can go fuck itself. It go fuck itself. I don't care about a left Twix or a right Twix. Not all that shit. And they're different factories. I, I will say this though. I just said Snickers probably does the most amount of advertising. I think Trix actually is right there as far as Twix. advertising. Trix is a cereal, but you know. Twix, Trix, whatever. <laughs> Silly rabbit. Yeah. So now, Barry, <laughs> let's wait. We've got to the number one. Again, advertising. This company does a lot of advertising. Barry, what would you do for a Kit Kat bar? Uh, I'm clearly paying for my sins last night, Jeff, because you are 100% correct. Check. 
again. And that is because Kit Kat and Twix are both doing, along with Snickers, probably do the most advertising. So I actually prefer the Kit Kat versus the Twix. Uh, it does have the cookie crunch that you said go fuck itself. It so. does, it does. Well, it's more of a wafer type of deal. I don't love I don't love it, though, at, by any stretch. But again, I, it's not like I'm going to say I'm not going to eat it. With Twix, I, I probably, I, I don't know, depending on my mood, I, I may eat it, I may not. Kit Kat, I would probably eat. I do prefer it more, but I'm not much for you know, cookies and that stuff in my chocolate for some reason. I don't know so why. So here is an interesting uh, little comment uh, in the uh, selection box here, uh, which leads me to another question. Barry, Barry did you ever uh, in your travels get a chance to go to Atlanta's World of Coca-Cola? I don't think I ever have. Okay, well, and the reason I mention that is because one of the things that it featured was uh, it would give you different varieties of Coke that were sold in different parts of the world. Like, oh, yeah, you know, you had your... Uh, I'm just going to throw an example, like a banana flavored Coca-Cola or oh. something like that. That's sold in, uh, you know, in Pakistan, for God's sakes. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know <laughs> Pakistanis, they love a good banana. I, flavored I, Coke. I, I need Lou. Lou, can you start to research? If yes, I can immediately Pakistan. But because yeah. the reason I mention this is because according <laughs> to this article, if there is a Japanese supermarket <laughs> near you or you're in Japan, yeah. they will sell different flavored Kit Kat bars, including one that is a green tea flavored Kit Kat bar. Yeah, I would, I've I, never heard of that before, but I think that's kind of a, kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I have to check with our friend Ashley Elena Kamek to see if she has had any of the uh, green tea flavored Kit Kat bars. I would try. I, I had a green tea ice cream a week and a half. I mean, it's mild. It's not, you know, it's not this jump out at you kind of flavor, but it's not offensive. The flavor is not offensive at all. So I would try it. I, I got to tell you, I'm stuck on banana flavored Coke in Pakistan now. I, I, can't get <laughs> I, that did, my, I did my research on you that. You did? One. I can't get that out of my head. I called now. over. I spoke to a guy that lives in Pakistan. Spoke and, to uh, a guy, right. said, What's the flavor of Coke that everyone likes? It? Oh, the, the banana flavored Coke is the best. <laughs> so I don't know why I'm doing an Indian accent talking about Pakistan. But uh, so anyway, oh, Barry, the old top 10 chocolate. Yes, they're very similar. Interesting, too, because I've been. And Pakistani food is different than Indian food, but there's ours, there are similarities. But I'm eating so much Indian food lately, but I'm now, the next time I go into the Indian restaurant, I'm going to ask for banana-flavored Coke. And just see what kind of month I get, <laughs> you know? Green tea-flavored Kit Kat <laughs> just to top off the meal with. Barry, as we begin to do the old year, go home. I would say that uh, I would remind you that Breaking Cape with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Not waiting to the very end there this time, Lou, our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, out in the Bay Area. Well, the lights go down in the city. That's my little Steve Perry impersonation. I know you're impressed, Bear. Uh, my uh, co-host, Barry Rose, in the uh, general uh, Keystone State area, Pennsylvania. Yep. And me, they call me the booker, Jeff Bowdrin. I am up here in northern GA and want to thank all of you for joining us. And we would encourage you one final time, Barry, I'm going to mention it. Subscribe, please, to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Bowdrin and uh, Barry. And we hope you can join us each uh, month. We will have a new episode coming out. I believe it's the first Thursday of each month. So please subscribe, join us, because the content that we have on the Patreon page, you will not be getting on this page. It will not be discussed. It will not be talked about. It is further Bowdrin and Barry content. And if you don't subscribe, <laughs> you'll never hear about it. Bro.